uh, marketing is seen as a, a four-letter word, right? A, a bad thing. Uh, influence is seen as a bad thing. No one wants to be influenced. But if we use these type of tools to get people to make better choices, to feel better about themselves, to eat healthier, to exercise more, to do a variety of good things, we wouldn't say that's negative, right? We would say that that's good, right? We're moving them in the right direction. It's only when these tools are used to encourage people to buy something they don't need or make bad decisions, then then we see influence as, as a, a negative thing. And so to me, you know, influence marketing, behavioral science in general is neither good nor bad. It, it's kind of agnostic, right? It's, it's a tool. That was Jonah Berger. Now, Jonah is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, he's also a very well-known author author of other books called Contagious, Invisible Influence, The Catalyst. And today we are talking about language in his most recent book called Magic Words. Now, before you go, wait, wait a minute, what do I care about language? I'm not a linguist, but you are. And you've heard me say many times on the show that the words you say to yourself are the most important words in the world. But if you, I wouldn't even leave it there, right? If you are interested in things like confidence, if you're interested in things like your identity, who are you at your core agency, the agency that you have in the world, your ability to do what you wish, how you wish, these are fundamentally, it turns out, especially in our culture, since we're social animals, are grounded in our ability to choose words wisely. And this is why, among other things, this conversation is absolutely fascinating. Take confidence, for example. Do you want to be more confident? Yes, it turns out that choosing the words that that signal confidence, whether you're speaking to yourself or to a boardroom or to a teacher, a peer, a, an investor, whatever you might be, it turns out that this matters a ton. And today's conversation with Jonah is right down the middle. This is so helpful for um, what I believe to be a core, you know, the core group here that is our community on the show. If you are a creator, you're an entrepreneur, you're, you're seeking peak performance, I do not think there is a world in which when you listen to today's show, you will come out of here not saying that, wow, that was worth my time. And I do want to direct, again, his book, Magic Words, is uh, is very, very valuable. You don't want to pick up a copy. But before then, I'm going to get out of the way. You enjoy today's show, yours truly, and Jonah Berger. Jonah Berger, welcome back to the show, a repeat guest. Nice to have you back, my friend. Thanks so much for having me back. I appreciate it. You keep putting out this amazing work, and we will keep having you back as a guest. This week <laughs> This week on the show, we're talking to Jonah about a new book. Uh, but before we do, I'm hoping that for the handful of folks who may not be familiar with our earlier episodes, you and or your work, why don't you orient us around, uh, you know, how do you identify in the world? Uh, what are the things you care about and why ought the audience pay attention? Yeah, uh, that's a tough question. How do I identify in the world? Um, uh, in my day job, I'm a, a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. I teach marketing, um, uh, but I do a lot of research on uh, behavioral science. So why we do what we do, why products, ideas, and behaviors catch on, uh, how we can influence others and change things in the worlds around us, uh, and more recently, how we can use language uh, more effectively. And so, published a couple books: uh, Contagious, The Catalyst, Invisible Influence, and most recently, Magic Words. 
And I love to think about how all of us, um, by understanding how behavioral science works, can live happier, uh, healthier, and, and more successful lives. Behavioral science seems to have, it seems like, again, this is from someone who's not at all in the industry, yeah. but from an outsider, it never was a part of my vocabulary 10 years ago. And now it's like, you know, maybe it's because we're living in a world where so many products come at us, where we're receiving so many marketing messages, but the idea of human behavior and behavioral science, it seems to be everywhere that I turn now. Is that, uh, is my understanding of why that is elevated in prominence accurate or have, am I just become, is it like the Volkswagen bug thing, right? You buy a <laughs> bug and then you start seeing them everywhere. You know, it's an interesting question. Um, I think there are a couple of reasons. So um, economics and psychology and sociology and anthropology, all these disciplines that have been doing work related to this space have always been around. They're not new. I think the problem is when you think about economics, uh, you think about fluctuations in stock prices and um, you know macroeconomic factors. Uh, when you think about psychology, you think about people lying on a couch um, uh, or you know clinical psychology. Um, you think about sociology, um, uh, other things come to mind. And so none of them really get, or really those terms, I think, get at what um, is going on at the moment. Um, and, and it's really research that mainly is happening in psychology, but also happening in marketing and management and business schools, some uh, in behavioral economics, using both experiments uh, and existing data to better understand people and, and what they do. Um, and, and you're certainly right. The access to data uh, has has changed in an amazing way. Um, you know, now uh, almost everything we do, uh, many things we do are, are recorded. Um, and so there's opportunities to study what we do and why in some new and exciting ways. You, the, the idea that that um, our our conversation, I mean, here we are on a recorded conversation sharing oh. this. You know, it, it, it's if you could look at our experiences and what we're recording here as, you know, data in some form, I think that underpins the point that I'm trying to make. There's also this part that is, um, what I think is really enlightening and it's this, the application of data in a packaged, like what you're doing here with writing books, you're a, a scientist, essentially a marketing scientist, and you're, you're giving us information. And, and if we are specifically going to address the listeners for the show, watchers and listeners of the show here as creators, as entrepreneurs, as people who are aspiring around, you know, human peak performance, knowing what drives people, what drives us as human beings is, I, I would say, critically important where we're making a product for other yeah. people as an entrepreneur or whether we're understanding our own um, behaviors in psychology as a creator to, to, you know, to look inward and to find out the, the way that we can make, put the best art out in the world. You have focused on a handful of topics over the course. You know, again, you've been on the show uh, a few times and with some of the books that you mentioned, this one in particular is around language. Now, the, the way that I talk about language on this show, there's a, there's a pretty broad spectrum. As a philosopher in my previous life, uh, in, in graduate school, I was a PhD student in philosophy. I understood language as not just a vehicle for us to, to communicate, but as actually sort of fundamentally programmed in some ways, this, maybe this is Chomskyan or whatever, but 
it actually guides our thinking. It's not just, you know, it's not just one way or another. And whether we're hardwired or whether language comes about, there's all sorts of like mystery around language. But what you've done in this new work, as I read it, is helped us identify using language to be effective in the world. So hone us in, given language is this huge topic. I'm fascinated by it. What is it in particular that you're studying here and why is it useful to those who are listening? Yeah, and uh, great, great question. And um, uh, interesting to, to think about the links that you mentioned. You know, what I'll say to start is that basically everything we do in one way, shape or form uh, involves language. Uh, we send emails using language. We make presentations using language. We pitch clients using language. We make phone calls using language. We have face-to-face conversations using language. We talk to spouses and colleagues and bosses and friends and children using language. Even our private thoughts rely on language. But while we spend a lot of time thinking about what we want to communicate, so um, you know, I'm in a meeting and I want to pitch a certain idea or I'm an entrepreneur and I want other people to listen. So I think about what I want to talk about. We think a lot less about the specific words we use when, when saying those things. Think about the question you just asked me, right? I said, okay, I understand your question. I want to respond. I have a sense of what I want to talk about generally, but I don't think about the specific words, right? I'm too busy focusing on the ideas. Unfortunately though, that's a mistake. Because the subtle shifts in language that we use, subtle changes in the words, one word versus another, can have a big impact on our success. Um, adding a, a particular word to request, for example, uh, can lead to about a 50% increase in other people's likelihood uh, of saying yes. Rather than saying, I like something, like a restaurant or an experience, saying I recommend it leads people to be about a third more likely to take your suggestion. And uh, everything from the language you might use in email uh, to the language you might use when applying for a loan provides information about who we are and what we're likely to do in in the future. And so the question I really ask in this book is, you know, what are these magic words and how, by understanding them, how can we increase our own impact, right? And, and you talked about kind of two different ways we can think about language. One, language impacts others. The words we say, the words we write, the language we use can shape whether people listen to us, can shape whether other people say yes to our requests, can shape whether we build social connection with others. Language also reflects things about us. It says things about who we are, and we can use the language that other people produce to learn things about them and what they're likely to do in the future. Everything from whether or not they're lying, for example, to whether someone's about to go through a romantic breakup based on the language they leave behind, um, uh, even in posts that have nothing to do with uh, romantic breakups. And so there's a lot we can learn about language and a lot we can take away for how to use it to increase our own impact. And that's what the book's all about. Um, now, again, having received an early copy, there are a lot of areas that I want us to focus on. Um, what you just laid out, it makes a very, very compelling story for our listeners, why you would care to pay attention. Because if you could be more persuasive or uh, cultivate more connection simply by word choice. I don't know who wouldn't count yeah. say yes. And given that, and given the breadth and depth of the book, I was hoping that we could focus on just a handful of the major topics. Sounds great. Um, yeah. This, and I'm, I'm referencing the book only because it's a tidy package that our listeners can, can easily pick up, which again, I highly recommend the title just in case you are interested at this point is magic words what to say to get your way very catchy 
use of language there. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't love the subtitle. Um, we spent a long time thinking about it because the book is not. It, yes, the book is some. There's some some examples of how to use language for persuasion, but it's also has to use language to be more creative, to motivate ourselves and others, to deepen uh, social connection with uh, close others in our lives. So it's really kind of how to use language, but what to say to get your way has a nice rhyme to it, and so. That's <laughs> Alliteration probably has a nice yeah. place in your uh, in your studies of language, but yes. we'll cover that yeah, yeah. a different time. So, well, I'm I'm interested specifically to start off in language as it serves or guides or um, helps us connect more with identity and agency. There are a couple. There's yeah. six six you know main areas of the book without going too much into detail now, but. To me, this is um, very interesting and important. I'm wondering if you can help people yeah. understand that the words they use cultivate identity, agency, um, et cetera. Yeah, good. And so just in case it's useful, I'll give the, a quick umbrella. Um, as you mentioned, there are six types of language, six types of magic words I talk about. Um, I, I like frameworks because it helps us remember things. So I put them in a framework called the SPEAK framework. Uh, the S stands for the language of similarity. The P stands for the language of posing questions. The E stands for the language of emotion. The A stands for the language of agency and identity, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, one of the C's is the language of confidence, uh, and the other C is the language of concreteness. Um, and uh, as your listeners might be sitting there going, wait a second, speak doesn't end with two C's, it ends with a K. They are right. Um, I couldn't figure out a way to, to come up with a K. Somebody pointed out that it's the most difficult Scrabble letter to use. So I, I felt less bad when I heard that. Um, but I, we've got speak with two C's. So that's the best I could do. We're going to. I love it. I love it. And that it's tied up in language is even funnier. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, but so, so I'll give you an example, one example uh, of the language of agency and identity. And then we can maybe dive into a couple others if there's time. Sure. Um, but uh, we often think about language about information, but language also suggests what it means to do something. And uh, whether it's someone's responsibility or, or blame or, or along those lines. And so let's say we're trying to get someone to, to do something. We might be asking for someone for, for help. Uh, we might, if we work for a nonprofit, trying to get people to turn out to vote. We're often asking people to take actions. Sometimes they say yes. Sometimes they say no. What could we do to increase uh, the likelihood that people say yes? And so a study was done now uh, many years ago, decades ago, uh, out at Stanford University, um, where uh, they went to a local uh, preschool and they asked four and five-year-olds to help clean up a classroom. Books everywhere, crayons, different things. And they said, hey, can you help clean up? But for some of the students, they said exactly that. They used the word help. Can you help clean up? And for another set of students, they tried a slightly different approach. They said, hey, can you be a helper and, and clean up the classroom? Now, help and helper are, are very similar, right? Helper is only a couple letters more at the end, ER at the end. But adding those two letters led about to a 30% increase uh, in the portion of students that, that helped. And it's not just kids in a classroom. Same ideas apply to adults with much bigger, more important behaviors. Some researchers tried to use this idea to see if they could get people to vote, to turn out to vote. Uh, often um, organizations say, hey, will you vote? Please go vote, uh, as we often do using the word vote. But for a different, different set of people, they asked them, said, hey, will you be a voter? Now, again, vote and voter are very similar. One is just adding an R on the end. But that led to about a 15% increase in people's likelihood of doing something significant, turning out to, to vote. 
And so you might be sitting there going, okay, but why? I mean, this is interesting, but why? Why is was helper more effective than help? Why is voter more effective than than vote? And, and the reason is, you know, we're all busy. Um, we all have lots of things going on. Um, uh, when someone asks us to do something, we often want to say yes, but we don't always have the time. We don't always have time to take those desired actions. But what we care more about than actions are identities. Right? We want to see ourselves and and showcase to others positive things about ourselves. We want to feel like we're smart and knowledgeable and competent and efficacious and all these different things. And so if an action is just an action, well, maybe I'll do it. But if an action becomes an opportunity to, to claim a desired identity, well, now I'm much more likely to do it, right? Voting, I know I should, but I'm busy. But if voting is an opportunity to show myself and others that I am a voter to claim that desirable identity, I'm, I'm more likely to do it. Similarly, if helping, I, I know I should help, but if helping is an opportunity to be a helper and I'm a kid and I want to see myself as, as having that desirable identity, well, now I'm, I'm much more likely uh, to do it. And so by turning actions into identities, we can change the likelihood that, that people take those, those actions. The same is actually true on the negative side, right? Losing is bad. Nobody likes losing, but people really don't want to be uh, a loser. Similarly, you know, cheating on a test is bad, but but seeing yourself as a cheater is even worse. It's a really negative identity. And so research on students finds that, hey, if, if we tell students that cheating will mean that they are a cheater, they're less likely to do it because they don't want to do anything that would claim that undesirable identity, right? There's an old uh, littering campaign, anti-littering campaign I think about here where they said, don't be a litter bug, right? Littering is a bad action. They wanted people to litter less. But if you tell people don't be a litter bug, well, now, hold on, I'm less likely to do that negative thing because I don't want to see myself as holding that that negative identity. And so that's just one uh, example of the, the language of agency and identity. Happy to talk about others or, or go to a different. Oh, no, we're, we're I'm going to spend some time here. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to spend some time here okay. because the uh, true to my earlier sort of uh, hint at my yeah, yeah. passion. Philosophy of for, language. For, for language. Yeah, the philosophy of language and whatnot. Uh one of the ways that I phrase this is that the most important words in the world are the ones we say to ourselves. Yeah. And you know, the, given you are a, uh, at the Wharton school of business in the marketing department, I often think of, uh, and, and I would maybe say that this is a more, more popular thing of marketing is an outbound thing, but the words that we say to ourselves, we're also marketing to ourselves, right? Yeah. We, this, this, multi-million year old organ that's between our ears is actually contrary to what people, you know, used to believe we program this thing and we are not our thoughts. So essentially we're having a conversation with mm -hmm. ourselves. And if we are, you know, so, so attached to being, to having the identity that we, in the way we want to see ourselves, yeah. clearly the way we speak to ourselves yeah. matters a lot. And specifically why I'm obsessed with this part of the book around identity is, uh, is we have the ability or we're constantly rather creating our identities by the words that we choose to, to use, to speak to ourselves. I'm wondering if you can comment yeah. on that and what you found in the research and, you know, um, if, unless I'm, you think I'm nuts. For no, no, that's great. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So, so two things came up as, as you were talking. Um, so first, this idea of, of turning actions into identities, sitting on that for one, one more second. Uh, I talked about how we can use that to get other people to do things, but um, the same is true of ourselves, right? So think about, you asked me earlier, how do you describe, your, how do you describe yourself? 
um, uh, and, and, you know, um, it's one thing to have uh, knowledge in a space. It's another to describe oneself as an expert. It's one thing to say, you know, I run. It's another thing to say, I am a runner, right? If I say I am a runner, that sounds like a much more stable part of my identity. And by the way, it's probably going to make me be more likely next time I'm thinking about going running to say yes, because I described myself that way, right? As, as you talked, um, as we were starting, um, you know, setting up um, the audience creators and entrepreneurs, right? That's an identity. Some of us may sit there going, well, well, can I, can I be a creator? Have I, have I done enough to be a, a creator? Or do, do I just create things, right? If, if we describe ourselves as creating things, it seems like a side hustle, something we do once in a while. If I say, I am a creator, I am an entrepreneur, now we're kind of owning that identity. It's a more persistent part of ourselves. And so it's not just about how we talk to others uh, and, and, and change their behavior. We can change our own behavior by, by sort of using words that uh, express identities in particular ways. So that was one thing that came to mind. An another um, is, is research on self-talk. Um, and this is, as you said, kind of how, how we talk to ourselves. Um, and there's a, a really neat book uh, by a guy named uh, Ethan Cross uh, called um, uh, Chatter, which is all, all about his research on kind of um, how, we, how we talk to ourselves. And I talk about a, a little bit of, of those ideas in, in the book, specifically kind of a, how we can manage um, uh, anxiety around performance. So maybe we're about to make a big presentation. Maybe we're about to pitch something. Maybe we're about to present something. We're worried about how we're going to come across. Maybe we're even on a, on a first date, or maybe we're having a difficult conversation with a colleague or a peer. We feel a little bit anxious, right? Um, and often in those situations, we talk to ourselves using words like I, right? Um, oh, I don't know if I can do it. Um, and this isn't what we're saying out loud, but we're thinking it. I don't know if I can yeah. do it. Like, will I make this work? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, often quite negatively. But if our friend was in that same situation, Right? We would probably say something different. We would say, you can do it. You've done it before. This isn't a big deal. You know, you've got this. Notice when we're talking to that friend, we're using words like you or their name, right? You've got this, Jonah, um, uh, rather than I. And we would describe those as second person pronouns rather than, than first person pronouns, with it, which what I is. Um, and and uh, that can actually be helpful if we use that same idea for ourselves, right? So we talk to others, we, we, we're talking to others, we see that it's going to be fine. When we talk to ourselves, we don't. What if we could talk to ourselves like we talk to others? And so they've done some really neat experiments with this where they put people in a, you know, a really anxiety producing situation. You've got five minutes to put together this important speech and everything's depending on it. And everybody's really nervous. Half the people they asked them to take that usual approach of, you know, talking to yourself like you might in your head, you know, you might say, I'm worried. I don't know if I can do it. But for the other half, they asked them to talk to yourself like you talk to somebody else. You can do it. Um, you know, use your name, those type of things. And, and they found that doing that reduces anxiety and increases performance. And the reason why is that it helps us distance ourselves from that negative emotional situation, right? When I'm using words like I, I'm involved, I'm in it, I'm there. When I use words like you, I almost step outside and see myself as another person might. And it's a little bit easier to get some perspective. And so it's not just about using language to impact others. Yes, we can do that. But as you nicely said, we can also change how we talk to ourselves uh, and make ourselves better off as a result. That is just a, so when you excavate or when one excavates or in my excavation, rather of other top performers in the world, that the language that, that top performers use, especially like if you think of a, you know, an Olympic athlete, for example, or it is so refined there are specific phrases that uh they have crafted 
And in those moments, they go to those phrases and they are very much about identity. They are very much positively supporting themselves. And when I hear, you know, I've referenced many times in the show being a golfer and I, you know, I hear people under their breath say, oh, you just, you know, shank that, you know, damn Shane, you should, you know, of course you were going to shank that shot or whatever. And you, when those little moments come out under the breath, you're like, wow, it sounds incredibly toxic. Yeah. And as you said, and Ethan has been a guest on the show. I'm glad you referenced huh. his, his work fantastic. Uh, for, for those folks. Uh, yeah. Ethan Cross, go back and check out that episode. It's fantastic as, as Jonah referenced, but the, when you hear these words that people say to themselves, and then you even think about, would you say that to your friend? Yeah. There's, there's no way would you say that. And if, if these are words that you wouldn't say to your friend, yeah, my goodness. And who do you talk to the most in this world? Whether you want to or not, you talk to yourself. Talk to yourself. So yeah. this, this reframing and using use of language has fascinated me for a long time. And, and I go back to some of these phrases or mantras that we are trained as top performers to say to ourselves prior to competition or engagement or whatever. And they are always positive and affirmative yeah. and often, you know, identity driven. I think yeah. back to a different guest on the show and friend, Tony Robbins, he's, he can, he said something like he can identify whether someone who has been say a smoker is prepared to quit or not. And it's all the, the, the distinction specifically that he made was if they said something about this, uh, 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 something in the past and, or like this person smoked and didn't desire it versus, well, I am a smoker. Yeah. That there was a, you know, some ungodly high percentage of not going to follow through on their actions because it was still tied up with their entity. Yeah. So, Nice point about sort of being diagnostic about who they are, where they are in their journey. Yeah. 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 So this identity is clearly powerful. And as a mark, you know, you're in the marketing department there at, at, at the college. Are we essentially marketing to ourselves? And is that, should that be seen as a bad thing or marketing to ourselves or others? And, or is this just a, a, a very constructive way of using the tool of language to get outcomes that we want in life. Like how do we distinguish those two things when, you know, if we're pitching to ourselves, there's that other piece of the brain, like, oh, you're pitching me. I'm, I'm, I'm stubborn. So help me wrestle with that for a second. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I get a question like this a lot. Um, uh, I think, you know, uh, marketing is seen as a, a four-letter word, right? A, a bad thing. Uh, influence is seen as a bad thing. No one wants to be influenced. But if we use these type of tools to get people to make better choices, to feel better about themselves, to eat healthier, to exercise more, to do a variety of good things, we wouldn't say that's negative, right? We would say that that's right. good, right? We're moving them in the right direction. It's only when these tools are used to encourage people to buy something they don't need or make bad decisions, then then we see influence as, as a, a negative thing. And so to me, you know, influence, marketing, behavioral science in general, it's neither good nor bad. It, it's kind of agnostic, right? It's, it's a tool. Uh, a hammer can be used to build something. You could also hurt somebody with a hammer. 
Same thing with the tools of influence and behavioral science, right? If you're if you're using it to help people, then it's a good thing. And if you're using it to to not help people, then it then it's certainly a, a bad thing. But you know, I I love this idea of the the mantras we use for ourselves, and even think about something as simple as you know, uh, I failed versus I am a failure, right? So so failed is this thing happened? I I failed, right? Or even even better, right? We we didn't win, right? Or or it you know today didn't work out. I'm distancing it from myself. Whereas if I say I'm a failure, I'm making it about me and I'm making permanent. And, and not surprisingly, that's more damaging. We want to make the good things about us and, and permanent. We want to make the bad things uh, distant and, and not permanent. Beautiful. Thank you for that, that tidy little bow. <laughs> um, this is a good time, in my opinion, to move on to what I think is... Uh, a, I think people understand this as valuable and yet it seems so unknown. And that is this mysterious thing called confidence. <laughs> and you know, you, you've taken confidence on in your work and how to convey it, for example, but maybe like, I don't know, maybe I'm making an assumption that it's important, but clearly you, you chose it because it's one of the six things in your book. What, why confidence and what can we do to convey it to ourselves yeah. and to others? Yeah. So, um, uh, I am fascinated by confidence. Um, uh, I, um, you know, we all have friends, colleagues, people we know that when, when they open their mouth, everybody listens, right. Um, uh, or when they, uh, write something, everybody pays attention to it. Um, they seem to have this charisma that we, we can all identify yet often it's hard to say, well, why, right? Why are they this way? And, and, and also um, for the folks, myself included, who look at other people like this and go, I'm not born with this skill. What is this skill? Um, I guess I'll never have it. A question is, well, by understanding what these folks are doing, can we do it better uh, our, ourselves? And so it's something certainly, you know, I have, I have uh, good friends and colleagues and um, others who I'm like, wow, you know, they speak in a certain way that everyone's treating them like they have this, what, what is this? How can we figure out what it is? And, and how can we figure out how other folks that may not have it can, can use it more effectively? And so um, if you look uh, uh, at uh, great leaders, um, if you look at top-selling salespeople, if you look at startup founders that get a lot of attention, if you look at gurus, they often speak a particular way. They often have one particular thing uh, in common. And, and as you said, they speak with a lot of certainty uh, or, uh, uh, or a lot of confidence. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, I don't want to get into to politics here. Everyone's entitled to their beliefs, but I want to spend a minute talking about Donald Trump because I think he's an interesting uh, example. You know, whether you like him or hate him, you can't deny that he's done a great job selling his ideas. If you like those ideas, you're happy about it. If you hate those ideas, you're angry about it. But something he is doing is making a lot of people listen to him and, and follow him. And so I think in situations like that, it's always wise to sort of peek under the the, the curtain, go, what's working? What's working there? Uh, and if you look at what he says, so when he um, originally ran for president, he made some sort of speech and he said something along the lines of following, look, um, uh, you know, if I'm elected, I will build a wall, a great wall, and I'll do it very inexpensively. And America doesn't have victories anymore. We used to have victories, but we don't have them anymore. If I'm elected, you know, victories all the time and, uh, you know, take China and trade deals. You know, um, if I'm elected, um, we'll beat China, we'll beat them all the time, blah, blah, blah and, and so on. Uh, and, and when the speech came out, some people panned it. 
as uh, overly simplistic or full of bluster. And, and maybe that was partisan in, in doing that. But a year later, he's elected president. And so whether you like him or hate him, something he's doing is working. What is it? And he does the same thing that those others do, which he speaks with a great deal of certainty or confidence. Great. What does that mean? Uh, and so if you look at the language that he uses, he uses a lot of words, a class of words I would describe as definites. Uh, this will definitely work. Everyone agrees. This happens all the time. Anyone can see this. This is obvious. Um, uh, always this works. Um, you know, certainly, definitely. Um, he speaks that this is just, it, it just is. It's going to happen. It is. There's no possibilities, maybes, buts. There's no what I would call hedges. Uh, and, and hedges are something that all of us do uh, all the time. Uh, and so, first of all, certainty increases impact. There's very nice research that shows that, you know, the more certain uh, a financial advisor is, the more likely we are to, to choose them, the more likely we are to take their advice, because it's hard when someone seems so certain, so confident, not to think they're right. Um, in confidence comes from a certain language that makes us seem confident, makes us persuasive. When we hedge, we do the exact opposite. And I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, right? Somebody, if I'm working with a client, they say, what do you think about this idea? I might say, uh, oh, you know, that might be a good idea, or I think that could work, or that's probably a good strategy. I'm using these words called hedges. We all hedge all the time. Um, uh, it's a, a sort of crutch we use linguistically when we're not sure. I'm not sure it's a great strategy. I'm not sure it's the best course of action. And so we hedge. Hedges undermine our impact. And I'm not saying we should never hedge. There are certainly times where we might want to hedge. Uh, but hedges undermine our impact because they make us seem less confident, right? When we say, oh, I'm not sure, or maybe, or possibly, it makes us seem like we're not sure. And so not surprisingly, other people don't listen to us, right? They don't take our advice um, because they're sitting there going, well, if you're not even sure this is a good idea, why would I go ahead uh, and, and do it? And so I think this has a, a couple takeaways. First, if we're trying to persuade others in most situations, we need to ditch the hedges or at least be careful uh, about using them. Don't just hedge because it's convenient. Don't just hedge because we're sort of trying to figure out what to say. Hedge because we're sure that we want to communicate that way. Second, if we are uncertain, there are better ways to communicate uncertainty, right? Let's say we're not sure of something. Uh, we're not sure something's going to work. We can say, well, I'm not sure that's going to work. Or we could say something like, I think this is a great idea, but to make it work, these two or three things need to happen, right? There, we're not undermining our own impact. We're making it clear that we are certain we do like the thing, but for it to succeed, these things need to happen. And so in some sense there, we're identifying the uncertainty. We're calling it out. Uh, we're owning it uh, in, in a way. And, and the same thing happens with, with phrases like, I think, right? Um, saying it might work suggests it's uncertain. Saying, I think, at least suggests that I'm confident about it. It's not clear that it's going to happen, but I'm confident about it, which increases persuasion. And so we need to think about hedges and, and think about how we can be more confident uh, in, our, in our language. You used a word, speaking of language, I just, this self-referential nature of languages, I can't escape the trap. I'm sorry. Um, I loved that you said confidence and skill in the same sentence. I think a lot of people, speaking of, I think, I think that <laughs> a lot of people do not understand confidence as a skill that is developed yeah. over time. I'm wondering if you have research that points to that, or if that was just an off the cuff phrase that you said, um, connect confidence and skill for our listeners. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I love the way you described it. And, and I, I think often we think about, um, writing, speaking, confidence as traits. 
you are born with this or you're not. Some people are just great speakers. Some people are just great writers. Some people are just more confident or charismatic than others. I wish I could be that way, but I'm not. Maybe I'm not that person. And so we think you either have it or you don't. It's a trait, right? It's something you're, you're born with. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I think all of these things are, are skills. Uh, confidence is a skill. Speaking is a skill. Writing is a skill. You know, um, certain people may be born to have a better chance of being a good soccer player, but if you don't practice, you're never going to get good at soccer, right? No one sits there and goes, oh, this person's a good soccer player just because they got lucky, right? They became a good soccer player because they spent a lot of time practicing. Same thing with speaking, right? Uh, nobody's born being a great public speaker. They might have an easier time doing it because they've had practice. But let me tell you, the more practice you get public speaking, it just becomes easier. The more practice you get writing something, it becomes easier. And, and confidence is the same thing. And you might say, well, well how does confidence a skill? Well, you, you practice it, right? You practice thinking about what you're saying. You practice thinking about how can I feel more comfortable about a particular topic or idea? You know, thinking about myself, um, uh, I did a PhD and then had to go teach, be a professor. I wasn't trained to be a teacher, right? You get up in front of a room and suddenly a whole bunch of people are expecting you to say something. You got to get better at it. Otherwise, it's difficult, right? Um, I took an improv class, for example, just to get better with that feeling of uncomfortableness, not because um, some people are born dealing with uncomfortableness, because we got to deal with it. Um, and so I think certainly like anything else, practicing will, will make you better. I love, to me, this makes it all so accessible, right? When you realize that you can choose the words that you say to yourself, go back to identity, that confidence is not an attribute or it's, it's not a trait. It's a skill that can be learned. Uh, when maybe the third area that I would love to cover, I think it, it's, there's a very clear, um, rhythm to why I want to go here now, which is around asking questions. So yeah. again, I cannot escape the, the, that we are talking about language here and I am now, you know, the self self-referential thing keeps going back to now here I am asking you questions about questions, about how to ask questions. Uh, and this show is now, I think 13 years old. Um, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I've been, uh, asking a lot of questions over a decade, uh, over more than a decade now. And I, for one, know that it is a skill. I look back at earlier interviews or conversations and I like to think of the conversations, but you know, it's my job as the host to ask questions that, that will get the guest to share things that I feel like the audience would be interested in. And I say that because I, I am very well aware that this is a skill, for example, yeah. but why did you choose of all of the things uh, around again, language and how it affects us and how we can use it to get our way in the world uh, to reference the subhead? Why asking questions? Why was that yeah. one of the most important things in your research? Yeah, you know, I I find questions fascinating. Um, and I think many of us use questions in a particular way. We use them to collect information. When I want to know something, I ask a question. And questions are really good for that. Questions do allow us to collect information. But questions do so much more work than than just that. Questions shape how we're perceived. Uh, questions ask, act like a spotlight, uh, uh, focusing attention on a particular thing we want to drive attention 
uh, towards questions guide conversations and, and guide attention. Um, and so they, they really do a lot of work if we understand how to use them effectively. And so I'll give you one example, happy to dive into more if, if there's time. Uh, but one is, is the, the idea of asking for advice. And so often um, we would like to get some information. We are stuck on a tough problem. We're dealing with something we don't know how to solve it. And we want to ask somebody for advice. We want to talk to someone who's been there. We want to talk to someone who knows about the space to figure out what we, what we should do. But often we're a little reticent to ask for advice. And, and there are a few reasons, right? One, we don't want to bother somebody. But also, even if we ask them, maybe they won't know the answer. Or even worse, they'll think worse of us for asking, right? They'll think we're less competent. We're less knowledgeable. We don't know what we're doing. And so particularly in a workplace context, maybe we don't want to ask somebody else for advice because they'll think we don't, we don't, we don't really know what we're doing and we're the ones who, sh who should know. And so we don't ask for advice. Turns out that's a big mistake. Um, some some researchers conducted some really nice work um, where they had people can uh, engage in a variety of interactions. Sometimes people uh, asked for advice and sometimes they didn't. Now, what'd they find? Well, it wasn't that asking for advice made us perceived uh, more negatively. In fact, just the, just the opposite. Asking for advice made people think we're more competent, more knowledgeable, um, basically smarter. You might say, well, well hold on. Why would, that, why would that be, right? You just asked for advice. You're indicating you don't know something. Why would that make you look smarter? And the reason why is it's really, it's really funny. Um, everybody loves thinking that they give good advice. We all do, right? We all think that we give good advice. We all feel flattered when someone asks us. Um, and so when someone asks us, we feel good about ourselves. They ask me for advice, but we also think positive of them. Out of all the people they could ask for advice, they asked me, they must be a pretty smart, smart person. <laughs> and so asking for advice makes us look good, um, but also allows us to collect this valuable information. Um, part of, it's no surprise, right? That we're social animals and we are in relation to one another as we move about our day to day. And it, it occurs to me that all, you know, if we, if we look back across identity and agency, confidence, asking, asking questions, are these, um, I go back to the magic words, right? This, which is the title of the book that we're talking about here. And you're, you're sort of the, the epicenter of your most recent set of research, what to say to get your way. Do you're in behavioral sciences, right? You, you are a, a, a behaviorist at your core. Is that, am I putting those words in your mouth or would that, would you describe yourself? Behavioral scientist. Yes. Behavioral yeah, scientist. I think that's okay. Yeah. So are are these behaviors naturally selected for and things that we, um, are, are we basically excavating the existing human psychology or are we learning that if we go in this direction and use these words and are we sort of pioneering? <laughs> so is it, are you taking stock or are yeah. you setting course Yeah, with this work? You know, I, um, I think about science a little bit like, um, someone making an ice sculpture. Um, uh, so if you've ever seen someone make an ice sculpture, what do they start with? They start with a big block of ice. Um, and it looks like a block, block of ice. And at the end they have this beautiful sculpture, but along the way they make a lot of little choices and they get closer and closer to something that looks like the end thing. And I, I, I see science at least as, as the same way, right? We are discovering things that are true. 
we didn't create those things. Those often things have been around for decades, if not, you know, millions of years or at least thousands. Um, but we discover them, we identify them and we, in some sense, capture uh, them. We take a picture of them. We understand them better than we used to. And so, you know, behavior changes. Um, uh, technology, for example, can shift our behavior in certain ways. Um, we've done some work, for example, recently looking at how speaking versus writing changes the language that we use. Um, we now spend more time writing um, than we ever have before, and that changes the, the the language that we use. Similarly, we spend time on our smartphones. That changes the language that we use. And so it, it's not that things don't change. They certainly do change. Technology, the situations, the context we find ourselves in shape our behavior. But I think a lot of uh, what we do in behavioral science is uncover things that are, are not new necessarily, but we just are starting to understand them better. Ah, that's helpful. There's a, it's sort of like the flashlight, right? There's like, it's what's happening now. Yeah. This makes me want to ask a question that could be perceived as, uh, um, this is my investigative journalism side. So okay. I'm going to go back to the, there's a, a study that I have referenced before. I think I pulled it up. Where is this thing here? Um, Oh, yeah. It was out of the University of Texas, the researcher Albert Marabian, Marabian okay. a researcher of body language, so take that for a grain of salt, but broke down the components of face-to-face -face conversations that communication with 55% nonverbal, 38% vocal, I'm guessing that's intonation, and 7% words only. You have elected to focus on words. And one of the reasons I often gravitate to, to people's work is because when they're, they're zigging, or everyone else is zigging and they're zagging. And so in this world where we're talking about, you know, getting together in person and the frequency that we're vibrating at and all, and, and you are essentially going the opposite direction. You're surgically focusing on specific word choices that can actually, you know, the way you talk about in the book is, is they can transform your lives. It's choosing one set of words over another set of words, especially in the sense of like how we talk to ourselves or confidence, for example. Yeah. So is your focus on words, this, yeah, are you intentionally like over, are you trying to over index on that, hey, verbal vocabulary and these words is really, really important and this other stuff is less important? or why the focus on words, uh, does it have something to do with the pandemic? I don't know when you did this research, was it because we were forced to write more things down or we weren't in the same rooms as other people, so the words that we chose had extra impact or efficacy or lack thereof? Yeah, I mean, uh, let's go back thousands of years, right? Uh, you know, sure. with the only people we communicated with were people we could see, right? Somebody next to us, and we would use gestures uh, or we would use uh, words uh, expressed vocally uh, to communicate, right? Um, but once written language came around, um, we started to communicate to people that weren't there uh, anymore. And, and now, by the way, we can even use spoken language to communicate to people who aren't, aren't there, right? I can use a voice note on my phone. I can record a voice note and uh, use my voice and send it to someone who's, who's not actually there at the moment. Similarly with uh, telephones or like we're doing now with, with video calls, um, we can communicate using our voice to people that are, are not there. Um, but as writing has, has increased, we are communicating more and more to people that are not there at the moment. 
And we're doing it more and more in a way that doesn't uh, involve visual information. When you send emails, for example, when you write text, for example, when you post on social media, for example, sure, you can post videos, but most people post words um, as well or only, um, and, and words matter a lot. And so certainly I'm not saying body language doesn't matter. I'm not saying vocal features don't matter. We've, we've done some work, for example, on vocal patterns that are more persuasive and, and, and why. Um, but I think every, I won't say every, almost every time we're communicating, even to ourselves, uh, we are using language, we are using words. Um, and so it's a, an important area to study and, and one that's only increased in prominence over time. This is part of what captured me when I was digging into this work, Jonah, is a lot of those things are external. We aren't, we aren't noticing necessarily our own body language, right? Because we're, especially if the words that we say to ourselves are among the very most important words that we utter, even if we don't say them aloud, we utter them internally. You can't get off on the, the, the body language thing. You, I mean, you're choosing very specifically what you program this organ between your ears with. And it seems like choosing wisely, there is a huge advantage. And if you just recall, you know, where we've been in this conversation with, with, you know, confidence, for example, our identity, who are we? These are the biggest questions that we can ask ourselves. And it seems like choosing good words matters. I, I don't think I could have said it better. I mean, that, that, that to me is what's what's so interesting about this space. You know, we, um, we're we all speakers. Uh, we may not get up on a stage in front of millions of people. Uh, we may not make speeches, um, uh, you know, at the Oscars or something like that, but we're all speakers. We speak in meetings. We speak to friends. We speak to loved ones. We speak to colleagues. We're all writers. We may not, you know, um, uh, write the Iliad and the Odyssey. We may not write Shakespeare, but we write emails. Uh, you know, we write presentations. Uh, we write reports. We write all sorts of different things, notes. Um, uh, and so we use language all the time in almost everything we do. By better understanding the language we use, by better understanding these magic words, we can all be happier, healthier, and, and more successful. Thank you for writing magic words, for identifying them as magic, because also that was, that's, um, I think it's powerful. And I should also say for anyone who's interested in checking out the book, Magic Words, What to Say to Get Your Way. There's also uh, a number of other areas. We didn't have time to cover all of them, but specifically words around emotion uh, and also how words can reveal if people are lying or how to predict a negative outcome, like a default on a loan, for example. Uh, I was fascinated by the work. And again, I want to say thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Uh, your work is always incredibly insightful. And again, specifically for people who are in our audience, people who identify as creators or as entrepreneurs or you know high performers or desire to do these things, the role of language cannot be overstated. So thank you for the work and for uh, whether you knew it or not, you're in service of this community. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Of course, always welcome. And where could people find you? And aside from the book, I should also maybe take a second and reference some of the other books that you've written that have been, um, I don't know, mainstays for our community. The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. That was very much about, you know, focused on persuasion. Um, Contagious. That may have been our first conversation. I, I think. think it was. Um, yeah, yeah. Back years ago, South, yeah, South by Southwest. Um, that is, you know, why things catch on. Uh, obviously, in, in a world of pop culture, the idea of 
things going viral and all that stuff is, yeah. is fascinating. Um, so I highly recommend for any listeners who've been intrigued by today's conversation, Jonah's got a bunch of other great work in the space. Uh, but again, magic words, uh, what to say to get your way, very catchy. Thank you for being a guest on the show. Anywhere else you direct them other than these other titles and yeah, you know, um, there's a bunch of free resources on my website. So um, if you want to check out the framework of the book, if you want to think about um, uh, for this book, you know, there's a guide to asking better questions and a, a guide to using language more effectively. Um, for each of the books, there's a, a bunch of free resources to apply the ideas. So that's just uh, at jonaberger.com, my, my website. And then if folks have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out there. Or you can also find me uh, at uh, on Twitter or on LinkedIn at j1burger. I break some of the rules for asking good questions. I realize that in <laughs> research. But again, thank you so much for being a guest on the show, for sharing your wisdom with us in the world. Um, for uh, anybody out there, check out Jonah's work on the internet and uh, wherever books are sold. And until next time, from Jonah and yours truly here, um, we bid you adieu until next time. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community, all of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive, positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing the show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. <music>